relationships. We're going to continue on this theme of neighboring today and transition to another aspect of loving our neighbors well. Uh, as I shared last week, a lot of my story was how I uh, was a bad neighbor, and that's really just kind of helpful lens for me to start thinking through uh, this journey for us because there's a lot of things that I've uh, had wrong assumptions in, and I, I'm assuming that I'm not the only one that found myself in those places. But uh, back in the day, when I looked at what it meant to be a good neighbor, there was really three things that it originally meant for me. First, being a good neighbor just simply meant do no harm, right? Like, don't be a jerk to someone, right? Like, don't, don't be mean to other people around you. Do no harm to those people that you come into contact with. Uh, make sure you teach your kids to not uh, be a nuisance, you know, that you teach your kids to behave well so that they're not bothering the neighbors and anything. Uh, don't hang Michigan flags outside your house. Um, you know, like just don't do harmful things that would really bother or frustrate other people. You know, that was like one aspect of being a good neighbor was just not doing anything bad. The second aspect of being a good neighbor was just simply like take care of your business, right? Like if you have something that's your business, something you need to do, you should do it, right? Like you need to, being a good neighbor means mowing your grass uh, which I'm not always great at. Uh, being a good neighbor means raking up your leaves when the fall comes, and it means taking out your trash before the wild animals get it, and it means um, painting your house like if it's falling apart, right? Like being a good neighbor means taking care of the stuff that's your responsibility to take care of, right? So that other people don't have to worry and be bothered by you. You take care of your stuff, right? Do no harm take care of your business. And then third, if you have anything extra in life, whether it's extra money or extra time or whatever, then, you know, like kind of contribute that where you can uh, for the good of others. You know, volunteer for your neighborhood association or help, help your neighbor out a little bit when you have the opportunity, uh, but out of the extra time that you have. So it was really just those, those three things uh, is what I saw that it meant to be a good neighbor. But I've come to learn and see that type of neighboring as uh, what I'm going to call today, I don't want to be like stuck with this the rest of forever, but for today, I'm going to call this grandparent neighboring, all right? And this is nothing, this is nothing against grandparents. This is actually like positive. I love grandparents. Uh, my parents actually, uh, who are grandparents to my children, uh, they're moving to town for the first time like a month from now, which is really fantastic in many ways, I hope. Uh, <laughs> So they're going to be moving to town, and it'll be the first time that we've lived together in the same city since I graduated high school, right? So I have not had this as a part of my life, uh, so my kids have grown up without knowing this, but it's, it's interesting to me that this move is happening, like, right now that all three of my children are potty trained, right? And, <laughs> and I'm not planning on, we're not planning on having any more kids. Um, by the way, on that one, if any of you have really uh, cute babies that, like, are well-behaved, like, please keep them away from my wife <laughs> in this. And, it, and honestly, like, if, you have, if you've had a rough night with your child of it, like, up crying all night and whatever, like, those are the stories that are helpful to share <laughs> for other people. I'd really appreciate that. But I think I'm out of diaper, the diaper stage with children, um, Lord willing. Uh, so we're out of that, and my, my parents are moving in. But that's, that's kind of the, the freedom that grandparents have any way, right? is that they can come into a situation 
and they can hang out with the kids and have all the fun stuff, but they don't, they don't have to change the diapers, right? Like, they don't have to if they don't want to because it's not their baby. Like, it's, it's just quite honestly not their thing. So they can hang out, and at the end of the day, and I, I mean that figuratively and literally, because at the end of the day, your kids are just animals, like, most of the time, right? Like, they just need to go. At the end of the day, uh, the grandparents know they can have all the fun. They can contribute in whatever ways they want, but it's still not their baby, right? So that's kind of how neighboring sometimes works out. Right, is that we have this mentality that we take care of our business. You know, my parents take care of themselves, and they see the business that we got going on, that Robin and I have going on with our kids, and they might contribute to that. They might help when they want to help, and that's very kind of them to do that. But at the end of the day, they know that our babies are our babies and not their babies, right? So they can contribute, but they can also, like, back off and walk away from that and have some distance in that. Uh, they're contributing, but they're not owning Right? They know that there's a difference there. Sometimes that's how we go about neighboring. But you know what? That's not the view of neighboring and loving others well that we see in the scriptures. There's a passage that I found really helpful to me in life in Jeremiah chapter 29 that we're going to talk about. Before we get into it, I want to set this up for you a little bit. So this is written by a prophet, uh, a truth teller to the people of Israel, right? And the people of Israel are God's chosen people. They're God's people. And they've been living in the promised land, the, the land they wanted to be, the land they said was flowing with milk and honey, right? It was their land. It was their neighborhoods. It was their cities. It was their towns that they formed. They've been living in this place until Babylon comes along, who is like the big empire, right? And Babylon comes along and conquers them. They defeat them in military battle. And when they defeat them, they don't just conquer them and say, hey, you have to follow us now. They actually remove the people from their land and carry them off to Babylon. This is what is known as exile, right? And this is probably one of the most important themes throughout scripture is understanding exile. So God's people find themselves in a land that's not their land. Their neighbors aren't just their people. Their neighbors are literally the people who captured them who ripped them away from all of their stuff, who ripped them away from their happy place. Those are the people that they're living in. The, the, the politicians are not their politicians. They didn't vote for them or allow them to rise to be king. The, the cultural elements, better or worse, aren't their cultural elements. They had no part in creating them or celebrating them. They may not even like them. Right? All that's going on in the neighborhoods they find themselves are not their things. They didn't help create it. They are not responsible for it. It all happened apart from them, and actually not just apart from them. It happened uh, to, because of people who are their enemies who brought them into it, right? So they find themselves in this very foreign place. And in the midst of that, God speaks to them through his prophet. He says this, hey, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all of you carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He says this, he says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city into which I carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Okay, so the people are finding themselves in this land among all these neighbors, and what do they want more than anything else? 
to get out of there. They want to get back to their homeland, right? They want to get back to the place where their house is the way they decorated it, where their neighborhoods are the way they created it, where their culture is the way they want it and the way they like it to be, right? They want to get out of this foreign land and get back to the place where they uh, own it, where they shaped it, where they formed it, where they are responsible for it. That is the place they want to be. And here God comes to them in the middle of the situation and he tells them, hey, while you're here in this place, here's what I want. I want you to build a house and settle down. I want you to live life. I want you to plant a garden. Like, get your roots down deep. Eat the food that comes from your garden. I want you to have kids and let them grow up and have them get married. I want you to live the life that you're supposed to live. Live this here in the middle of this place that you don't want to be, even though life is not how you want it. Live the life available to you. But he goes on from there, and he says this at the end. He says, also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Seek the peace and prosperity of those around you. This word peace and prosperity there is actually the Hebrew word shalom, which you may have heard about. It'll appear many important times throughout the Old Testament. Shalom is not just peace and prosperity, but it's goodness and wholeness. Right? It's, it's things not being broken anymore. It's everything being exactly the way it should be. And so they're being told, I want you to go out and to love your city that you're in well and to work so that your city experience wholeness and brokenness. I want you to work so that the things that are broken in the city will be fixed so that the people of the city who are your enemies will, will prosper and have goodness and fullness of life. Can you imagine how frustrating this would be, right? To, to be carried off in this place and you're telling me like, okay, I've been carried off. What I want to do, A, is get out of here. What I want to do, B, is try and live as normal of a life with my people around me as I can, right? To just get like the fellow people of Israel who have come here and we're just going to get away and we're going to have like our, our little clubs and we're going to like get together and we're just going to like try and get through this together. And instead saying, here's what I want you to do. I want you to work for the goodness of these people around you. Oh, that would be really frustrating. I want you to work to fix the brokenness of the political systems around you. I want you to work to fix the brokenness of the family and relationships around you. I want you to work to fix the brokenness of the people around you. And it gets even worse with this last part of that verse. Not only seek the peace and prosperity of the city, but this. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, if it becomes whole, if it becomes good, you will prosper. You will become whole. You will become good. So this is really frustrating even more, right? Because now it's not only pursuing goodness and shalom and peace in my life and trying to see my life put together from all that we've experienced, but it's saying that if I'm ever going to have peace and wholeness and all this stuff, I'm going to find peace and wholeness by pursuing peace and wholeness for my neighbors, for my enemies, and I won't experience peace and wholeness until they do. Ah, that's frustrating. This is saying that our peace and goodness and wholeness and lack of brokenness is wrapped up together with those of our neighbors and our city around us. It's not just ours here and theirs there, but it's together. If we want peace and wholeness, we must seek it for others, even when they're our enemies. 
Why would he ever ask them to do this? He asked them because this is how he loves us. This is how God loves us. One of the most strange stories in the Old Testament, one of my favorites, is the story of Hosea, who is also one of God's prophets, one of God's truth tellers, but God speaks his truth to the people of Israel through Hosea by using Hosea's life as an object lesson. That probably doesn't feel very fun. <laughs> if I'm Hosea, I'm like, God, can't you use like balloons or something to like <laughs> tell your object lesson? But no, it was Hosea's life that was the object lesson, right? And so in Hosea's life, uh, Hosea becomes the, um, in, in the object lesson, Hosea becomes the symbol of God and Hosea's wife becomes the symbol of the people of Israel, and their children become kind of the consequences that come out of life, right? Um, so Hosea ends up marrying this woman named Gomer, which from age three to age six of my life, I was forced to watch Andy Griffith's show like every day at lunchtime. So like I hear the word Gomer, and I'm just like, I'm in my happy place, peaceful place. It makes me feel really old to say that, but like hopefully some people can appreciate that. <laughs> oh, childhood. Um, so he marries this woman named Gomer, right? And before long, it becomes very, um, they become very aware that, that uh, uh, Gomer is not faithful uh, to the marriage, that she's going out and she's uh, sleeping around, even to the point that she kind of becomes known and then fully as like a prostitute in, in the town, right? And Jose is just really wrestling to deal with this as this is all unfolding and unraveling, as you could imagine anybody in this situation would be, right? So he's wrestling with how he deals with it, how he goes through it. And so you see children start being born. And the farther Gomer goes into her unfaithfulness, the more questionable uh, the genetics of the child are in the situation, right? And the more pain that Hosea feels as these children are being born, to the point that the third child uh, in the object lesson is literally named, like, not my people, right? So, like, as, as God is saying, hey, if I'm loving you and you're doing this, like, the, these consequences are not my consequences, right? Or for Hosea, it would be like naming your baby, like, not my baby, right? Uh, which you feel sorry for the kid, but that's what Hosea is feeling. That's what he's going through in this situation, so he's realizing that life is out of his control, and these consequences are happening that are not his consequences. This is not my baby. This is not my thing. I didn't choose this. I didn't pursue this. I didn't go for this. This is all on you, Gomer. This is you. It's not my fault. And God talks to Hosea, and he says this, hey, because I want people to understand how I love you, I'm going to ask you to do this, because this is what I would do, is I want you to go and chase down your wife, and I want you to pay the prostitution price for her for, like, all of life, and pay that for good, and I want you to take her back into your family as your wife, and I want you to take those children who are not your children, and I want you to take them in and raise them as your children. Those consequences were not Hosea's consequences. But by, by the love of God, God looks at our lives and our choices and our, our, all the things, all of the stories we have in our life, and he comes after us anyway, and he embraces us with a love that says, these consequences that I had nothing to do with that are not my fault, I am going to love you and walk with you and carry you through the midst of these consequences. That is the love that God shows us. And that is the love that Hosea showed to Gomer, and that is the love 
that the people in exile were to show to those in their city around them. Yeah, this is not your city. Yeah, this is not your neighborhood. Yeah, these are, you had nothing to do with creating the political systems that you now have to live with. You had nothing to do with creating the problems that exist in this city. This is not your baby. But now it kind of is. Because your well-being and goodness and wholeness is wrapped up in their well-being and goodness and wholeness. They were taking on a baby and a neglected one at that. How does this apply to us? Well, it's easy for us to live in this place of contributors or grandparents to the issues of our neighborhoods and our cities, those things going on around us. It's easy for us to, to live in that and to say, okay, I'm taking care of my stuff. You know, I got my thing. You got your thing. I see neighbors. I see city. I see country. I see world, what you're going through. And I'll contribute to that when I can. But really, like, let's be honest, that's your thing. Right? That's what it means to be a contributor. But God moves us from contributors to being investors to where we're involved. We see ownership ourselves. That's what he did when he entered our world through Jesus and took on flesh and blood and got into the middle of our situation. So God moves us from only fixing what we're responsible for and just helping little to starting to say that even if a situation is not my fault, it's not my baby in any way, I choose to take some responsibility for that out of love and out of seeking your well-being and your goodness and your wholeness. So what does that mean? Well, if my neighbor falls and breaks her hip, I had nothing to do with that, right? Like literally nothing to do with that. But if she can't get around and get groceries, you know, or can't mow her grass or whatever it is, like, that's not my fault, but it is my responsibility if I love her to pursue goodness and wholeness for her in the midst of that situation, right? If my neighbors are going through a challenging time in their relationship or their marriage, and the kids are feeling the stress and the anxiety of it, and, and I see that, and I see what everybody's going through, that it's not my fault that they're going through that. I had nothing to do with that. But even though it's not my fault, it still is my challenge to walk through with them to see how I can be there pursuing their goodness and their wholeness because my wholeness is wrapped up in their wholeness. Or even though my grandpas, both of them who served in World War II, were able to come back and they had ex access through the GI Bill to uh, low interest loans for housing, right? And as they came back and applied for those, uh, and they applied for those and got those, that allowed them to secure housing. And that secure housing allowed them to be financially stable so that my parents had the financial stability to be able to go to college. And my parents, because of their ability to go to college, were able to be financially stable enough for my sister and I to be able to go to college and have an education. And I am not responsible in any way for the fact that in the midst of that, that people of color who returned from World War II were not granted the same loans. In fact, of the first 67,000 loans that were set aside for soldiers coming back from World War II, of the first 67,000, only 100 of them 
went to African-Americans, 100 out of 67,000. That is not my fault. I had nothing to do with that. But as I look at my neighbors and I realize that uh, because their parents didn't get that or their grandparents didn't get that, that their parents' life is different and their life is different, and I look at what they're going through, it may not be my fault, but it still is my responsibility because their wholeness is wrapped up in my wholeness. It's all wrapped up together. And when I look at some of my neighbors and understand that while my parents were teaching me what it meant to succeed in life and what it meant to get ahead in life, that because of what they experienced, their parents were teaching them just how to survive in life. And because of that, we have two different sets of tools for which to face life and to make decisions, which leads our life in two very different directions with different sets of capabilities before us. When I look at that situation, it's not my fault that that happened but it is my responsibility, not just theirs. Right, when we see this change in how God loves us, we realize that our responsibilities are not just on our sides of the fence, but our wholeness, our prosperity, our flourishing is wrapped up in the wholeness and the goodness and the flourishing of neighbors. We do need to do something. So what does this movement from contribution to investment, to partial ownership look like? Well, it starts with empathy, with empathy, with understanding and feeling what others are going through. I love these passages in Hebrews. This is talking about Jesus here. It says, for we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus went through the things that we went through. Because he went through them, he has ownership in there. He feels what we're going through. He understands. And author of Hebrews felt that was so important for us to know that Jesus feels empathy, understands what we're going through. He empathizes with us. The second verse here in Hebrews later on tells us to remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. That is deep. That is definitely to like a level that I never uh, thought or learned or experienced throughout my lifetime of growing up. That is, that is a level that I did not understand. It's not just, I mean, I would like, you know, I remember as a kid, like we would sometimes like write letters to those who are in prison, you know, like we're praying for you or whatnot, or we'd like, you know, get Christmas presents around, you know, for families there, or whatever. But like remembering them as though we were their fellow prisoners? as though those who are mistreated, as though we were actually suffering with them, that is empathy. That is not just knowing what someone is going through, that is going to the point that we understand really deeply what somebody else is dealing with. If we're going to seek the prosperity of our city, it has to start with empathy. And we get to empathy in a couple of ways. One of the ways we get to empathy is by actually putting ourselves in the middle of a situation to watch and experience and learn. Right, to actually get right there in the middle of it. Again, a lot of these learning experiences for me have had to deal with race, though there's, uh, this applies on a lot of different levels, but this is just my experience. Um, I remember when I was in Keller Park for several years um, that the neighbor lady on the corner, an old lady, um, she would always open her door and let kids come and she'd give them candy and whatnot. And, um, she was really great. And so one day she opens her door and some of the kids shoved their way in and ended up like uh, robbing her and taking some stuff. And the police came. 
and I remember seeing the police come. And so I walked out of my house, um, just kind of arrogantly marched across the street. You know, it's like, hey, I'm Ryan. I live across the street over here, and I'm here to help. You know, like I know this lady, and you know, tell me what happened and what can I do. And the, the officer was really fantastic. Um, just a really fantastic guy and was telling me like oh this is what she went through this is what happened you know like this is what we're thinking about and whatever um why this is going on my neighbor uh, who's on the corner who's black uh, who'd lived there longer than i did does the exact same thing that i did comes out of his house is concerned for what's going on walks across the street goes to approach the house to see how he can help and as he hits the edge of the property he's seen by the officer who ends up Immediately, hand goes to the holster and turns around and says, sir, you need to stop. This is a crime scene. We can't have people coming on the crime scene, right? The officer didn't have hatred in his heart towards the man, I don't believe. I don't believe he had any of that going on. But what was really clear is for the first time, I began to understand that my experience was radically different than his experience. There was something there, and all the like, kind of rumors or stories I'd heard didn't make sense enough until I was actually there to see it for myself, to see that we had different experiences. If we're gonna have empathy well, we gotta find ways to get in the middle. We have to find ways to get right down in there and live life with other people so that we can see and understand what they're going through. A second path to empathy, something we need to do much better, I was so bad at and still need so much growth in is just listening. And not, not just listening to people, but like choosing to believe them when we hear their stories, right? When kids would tell me that they were followed around uh, in stores because they were black, uh, I didn't believe them. And then I would hear story after story after story after story. And over time, just through listening, when you start to hear it from, you know, 40 different kids, you start to believe things a little different. And, and even then, I didn't believe them enough until I experience it for myself, walking through a store with them and seeing them being treated differently than I do. I'm not saying it happens every time, but it happens. And I didn't believe it until I listened, and even then not until I experienced it. If we're gonna move towards empathy, we need to listen better. I had all sorts of opinions, very strong opinions, on uh, what the Bible had to say and how uh, everything worked regarding um, my neighbors who were LGBT. I thought I had it all figured out. I knew exactly who they were and what their challenges were and why they had those challenges. Um, and then I started listening. I started having conversations. And I didn't figure things out. But what I knew is my heart was broken in hearing them. And I knew that the things I thought were true weren't true of them. That the challenges I thought they faced were different than the challenges they do face but I had no clue until I took the time to sit back and listen. I still don't have all the answers, but I have a lot more clarity because we listen. If we're going to move towards investment, it starts with empathy through getting in there and through listening. But it starts with empathy, but it ends with action. It's not just enough to pray for our neighbors it's not just enough to think about it or to know about it or to think like, oh man, that's really bad. We're told in that passage in Jeremiah, the command was that they needed to seek the welfare, the prosperity, the goodness, the wholeness, the lack of brokenness. They needed to seek that for their city. They needed to actively pursue it. They needed to move towards it. They needed to do something about it. And if we live our life and all we get out of it is an awareness 
of the nature of what others are going through, and we never move towards action, then we've fallen short. We've fallen short of the love that God would have us for our neighbors and the love that God shows us. God wants to move us from just contributing to the welfare of our neighbors to be invested in it. We're going to have the worship team come. They're going to lead us just in a practice, a reminder of this. Uh, but as they do, remember that, that our world is a broken world. We have brokenness we experience and our neighbors do too. But the love of God is not a God that leaves up fences, that sees our problems on one side and the problems of others on the other side. The love of God is one that sees our welfare, our goodness, our wholeness wrapped up in theirs. And if we want to experience it ourselves, it comes through pursuing it for them. I'll leave us with the encouragement of Paul in Galatians. He said, carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Hey, as we close, I want you to know a couple things. One is, uh, if this is the first time you're hearing some of these conversations, it can be a little jarring, and I understand that. If you want to have any conversation or follow-up about anything that we've talked about this morning or anything else, uh, let me know. Uh, I'd love to grab coffee with you sometime. My email is ryan at southbendcitychurch.com. You can hit me up there, and we can grab coffee and chat about this. I'd love to hear more. Uh, second, uh, next Sunday and Tuesday, we are going to be able to practice some of this. We're going to have a listening Sunday. We're going to have a conversation uh, with pastors Edgar Cabello and Apostle Willie Coates are going to be here. And it's going to be a great time for us to listen uh, and learn a lot about the city and learn a lot about relationships. So that is going on next Sunday and Tuesday. And I want to leave you with this challenge. Uh, again, taking the challenge of what we're talking about today, the challenge towards empathy. And here is your challenge for this week, your neighbor challenge. We'll talk about it next week. It is simply this. Ask somebody to share their story with you this week. Just ask somebody to share your story. That's it. Uh, as we leave, I will leave you with a benediction we close with every week. Grace and peace be with you. Have a great week.